Father, we do pray for all the victims of the hurricane several weeks ago, particularly those so hard hit in the Bahamas. Pray for the ministry of New Vision. Pray for avenues for us to join in that ministry for your glory. We pray for Pastor Scott and Gina. Bless their time. Bring them home safely, refreshed. And Lord, pray for this time in your word. Thank you for blessing our worship this morning. As the worship continues in your word, I pray you'd forgive my sins. And Lord, just that you would speak clearly from your word to us, that your spirit would take it and apply it to our hearts and our lives, drawing those not in Christ to come in faith, those of us who are to grow more like him. Father, we pray these things in his name. Amen. I'm also reminded of Hurricane Michael last year that hit the Florida panhandle and of the image of that one house back there um, standing by itself, seemingly unscathed, where all around were completely missing houses, badly damaged houses. And in a news article by Sean Breslin uh, at the time, he wrote, an image of one home still standing amid unthinkable devastation shows the hard work and forward thinking of Dr. LeBron Lackey, a radiologist from Cleveland, Tennessee, and his uncle Russell King, an attorney from Chattanooga. Lackey didn't say how much he and King spent to build the home, but he did disclose they spent 15 to 20% more to go above and beyond standard Florida building codes. Neither one of us had ever built a home, Lackey told Weather.com. We knew we were building a home in a position to potentially suffer a natural disaster, a hurricane. Their construction included tall 40-foot pilings driven deep into the ground and several other features that basically all were connecting the whole house to those pilings. Lackey, who was in Tennessee during landfall, watched the footage from a security camera with great concern. I went through the storm with a tremendous amount of anxiety and concern, said Lackey. I was also heartbroken for all those dwellings around us. This gives us a very vivid image of the power of rain and floods and wind and the importance of a really strong foundation. That's the exact image that Christ is using in in our passage here this morning. He compares building a house to building a life, and we're all building our lives. From, From the youngest to the oldest, we're building our lives. Maybe we're at a young stage with dreams and visions and plans, or maybe we're older and, and trying to solidify the legacy of our life, but we're building our lives. And Christ compares the storms to the trials and the tests of life. And these storms of life can include physical ailments, disease, aging. It can include financial, material challenges, struggles, loss. It can include relational difficulties, conflicts, hurts, estrangements, disappointments, divorce. It can be our own struggles, maybe with with temptation, maybe with sin and its consequences, maybe with, with doubts. The storm can include persecution. The Bible tells us the storms include Satan and his demons attacking from behind many of the things we face directly, as it describes in Ephesians 6. The storms certainly include physical death. The death of someone we love dearly, the bereavement of that and the loss of that and the the heartache of that, and our own death. Given to man once to die and then the judgment. The only exceptions will be when Christ comes back, those who are raptured, but we all face death. And then these storms certainly represent, ultimately, judgment. Judgment before God, the final judgment. We see that not only here and in the context here, but Matthew 25, the book of Revelation, many other places through Scripture. So let's begin here in the immediate context. Verse 24 says, Therefore... Of course, whenever we see therefore, we want to see what, what is it therefore. And we look back. We look to the context that comes ahead. 
And it's certainly referring to all of chapters 5 through 7. 5 through 7 of Matthew is a sermon that Christ preached. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. And so our passage today is his conclusion of that that sermon. So it's certainly all three chapters, but more immediately, it's from the the middle of chapter 7 forward. So in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, it speaks of the narrow gate and the narrow way that leads to life and the broad way that leads to destruction. That many find the broad way, but only a few find the narrow. There's judgment there. There's discernment of which way are you on. And there's promise if you find it. Verses 15 to 20, he says to beware of false prophets. There are wolves in sheep's clothing. So they don't look like wolves. So again, discernment is being advocated. And he says, how do you tell? How do you discern? Look at their fruit. A good tree is going to only bear good fruit, never bad fruit. And a bad tree will only bear bad fruit, never good fruit. And trees that don't bear good fruit will be uprooted and burned. Discernment, judgment. Then verses 21 to 23, one of the most sobering passages in the Bible. Where Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter my kingdom. It will be everyone who does the will of my Father. And many in response will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this in your name, and this in your name, and this in your name? And they'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Judgment. Self-deception. Sermon needed. And so it's that background as Christ comes now to his closing image, the close of his sermon in our verses. It continues this warning, this warning against a false profession of faith and self-deception. And it does so by presenting two, two ways, kind of harkens back to the narrow and the, and the broad he's already mentioned. Two ways that we can respond to his words. Respond to the, those there that day to these very words of the sermon, but by extension, all of us in responding to his, to his words in the Bible. One, he tells us how to build a life that will survive the storms of tests and judgment. Or, secondly, how to build a life that will fall to the storms and utter destruction. Let's, let's read again these four verses. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And it fell, and great was its fall. As we read and study these four verses, we find there's, there's much that's repeated, much is parallel. You notice it just as you read through it, with a few key contrasts mixed in. And so to look at these carefully, we're going to alternate between the two builders and the two houses to catch these similarities and these differences. So beginning at the beginning of verse 24, he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine. So first, to build a life that will survive the storms. Hear Christ's words. Hear Christ's words genuinely. So what are these words of Christ? Again, most directly, the words of this sermon. But by extension, all of Scripture all of the Old Testament and the New Testament. These 66 books are the word of Christ. We we know this because the scriptures testify to being God's inerrant, authoritative word. Every word of it and the entirety of it. Here in Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18, just glance back two chapters. Christ, in this very sermon, says, Do not think... Verse 17, chapter 5, that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. That's the Old Testament. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all 
is accomplished. <clears throat> he goes on in the following verses of chapter 5 to quote as the authoritative word of God from the Old Testament and then to add his own teaching of equal authority to it. In John three thirty four, speaking of Christ, it says, He whom God has sent speaks the words of God. He promises in John 14, the Holy Spirit will guide the apostles to remember his words and teach them. Chapter 15 of John, the apostles' words will be kept even as Christ's words are kept. And the, and the New Testament is written by the apostles and, and close associates of theirs with their blessing. Chapter 16 of John, the Spirit will guide the apostles. 1 Corinthians 2.13, they are taught by the Spirit. 2 Peter 3.16, Paul's writings are grouped together with the rest of the scriptures by the apostle Peter. And then the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 5.18 quotes Deuteronomy 25 and Luke 10 together as equal Scripture. There are many more places we could go, but the point is the Bible attests within itself that all of the Old and New Testament and only the Old and New Testament are the very words of God. The words of Christ, who is God the Son. 2 Timothy 3 says all Scripture, all that qualifies as Scripture, these books are God-breathed, inspired by God. Peter in 2 Peter 1 says how that happens. Men were moved along, carried along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote. So that God made sure, even as they were thinking, they were involved, they were researching in some cases, that what they actually put down was exactly word for word what he wanted. John 17, 17, Christ says God's word is truth. Not that it's true, which is an important distinction. If he had said God's word is true, it means then there's a standard above God's word that it's measuring up to to be considered true. He didn't say that. He said God's word is truth because God's word is the standard. There's no higher standard. Because God breathed it out and God is the ultimate authority, then this is the ultimate authority of what is true. So we believe this is the word of Christ, the word of God, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, because it tells us it is. And some people say, wait a minute, that's circular arguing. In a sense, yes. The problem is there's no other higher authority to go to. So it is legitimate that we believe the Bible because the Bible tells us to believe the Bible. Now there's, there's confirming evidence. Things like 40 men over 1,400 years consistently same message. Not contradicting. There's things like fulfilled prophecy of Christ. Amazing. The specificity and the number of those being fulfilled is statistically impossible. But it happened because things are possible with God. It's his, it's his word. There's a dynamic nature of it. Hebrews 4 speaks of how it pierces our heart. It affects us and it, it makes us wise for salvation in, in 2 Timothy 3.15. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. We've its dynamic nature confirms it, but we believe it because God tells us it's the truth. So all the Bible are Christ's words. So the next question is, how do we hear his words? Those listening to Christ heard his sermon that day. We can still hear by hearing sermons, by hearing Christ's word preached by hearing his word taught, and we should be taking his word in by hearing in those ways. But in addition to that, we can read his word ourselves. What, what a blessing. That's not true everywhere in the world. It hasn't been true everywhere in history, even among Christians, so that we have, probably everyone in here has a copy of the Bible, and many of us have multiple copies. That, that we have it. It's been preserved. It's been translated. We have it in our hands. We can read the Bible ourselves. We should be faithful stewards to do so. And we can study the Bible. Studying is reading with paper and pen or computer. So the same idea. We're reading as we're reading. We're noticing. We're, we're observing things. We're jotting what we observe down. We're, as we read, we're answering questions from what we're reading of who and where and when and what and why. We're noticing things that are repeated. We're noticing key words, key verbs, the way the, the grammar, the syntax is structured. And we may not be able to label all that from high school English or whatever, but we, we're still just, we're just looking at the words, the language, and we're seeing what's there and noting it. 
We, we check the context, context, context. What comes before? What comes after? What does this fit with? We check the whole of Scripture and, and other specific Scriptures that can help us understand this Scripture. We check culture and history of, of when this was written and who wrote it and to whom did they write it. And through all of that, we're seeking to determine what does this mean? What is God telling us here? And it's not, what does it mean to me? That's ridiculous. And yet that's a common way of viewing all writing, including like the Constitution of the United States. The dominant theory has been just whatever we want it to mean for our society today. Nonsense. It meant what it meant to the framers or the writers of the Constitution. If we want to change it, we have to change it through the proper process. How much eternally more significant is it to understand the Word of God means what God meant for it to mean when he revealed it, where he breathed it through, where he carried along those men as they wrote those words. It means what it means. There's one meaning. Study it to find that meaning. And then check yourself. If you think you found it, good commentaries. People who believe the truth of the scriptures. And, and check yourself out. Am I way off or, or, or am I in the right place? If you, I encourage you to pursue this. Don't be afraid. Every believer can study the word of God for themselves. The next uh, life seminars, Josh Brown has been teaching one, Maximizing Your Devotions. I think that's the title of it. Take that. It'll go into a lot more detail of how to study for yourself. Discipleship training program hits on this sum of getting us into the word ourselves and to study it out and to, and to teach it. Um, the, the one-on-one partners discipleship has a whole chapter, how to study the Bible. Come just to one of us pastors. We'll help you out. There, there are great resources Let's dig into the Word of God because we have the Word of God. The words of Christ are right here for us. And we can also memorize the Scriptures and meditate on the Scriptures. Not Eastern mystical type meditation, empty your mind. It's the opposite. Fill your mind with the words of God and ponder them, chew on them. And and at least towards two results. One is worship. If, If we're meditating on the words of God as he's revealing himself to us, that's going to lead us to worship. And then also to apply it. How do I, how do I take what he's revealed, what this means, how should it affect how I think, how I'm living, what I'm doing, what I'm saying, my relationships, and so on. And a very important aspect of how we should hear God's word is to do so genuinely. Take it to heart Submit to it as it examines our hearts, our lives, as it convicts, as it rebukes, as it trains, as it corrects, as it encourages, as it guides. Be submissive to it, glad to receive it, even when it hurts, even when it's difficult. And and don't treat it as just a mechanical, let me check off my religious activity. I read my Bible today. I had said a prayer today. Read the Bible and pray to seek Christ, to know Christ, become more like Christ, to, to pursue right, to hunger and thirst for righteousness and Christ-likeness. To build a life that will survive the storms, we must hear Christ's words genuinely. Now, let's, let's jump to the parallel in verse 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine, that sounds exactly the same. So secondly, to build a life that will fall in utter destruction, hear Christ's words. Doesn't that strike you as a little strange? It struck me strange at first. Of, it's the same. It's starting out the same. Completely opposite life building and results, eternal results, are starting out the same. Now I added a word to distinguish, because I think the context does distinguish. Genuinely versus here superficially. And and need to note, what about those who don't hear his words at all? The Bible does address that. For instance, Romans chapters 1 through 3 make clear that we are all sinners, that in our sin we're all under the wrath of God, and we'll face that eternally. That all of us reject God's general revelation, his revelation to every single person of all time, through creation, through conscience. We all reject it. 
and are therefore without excuse. He goes on to the gospel. The only, the only way out of that condition is Christ. But he, he answers that question. But that's not Christ's focus here. Christ's focus here is for those who have heard his words. There's still, that doesn't take care of it. We can't say, well, I, I'm in church and I hear the word preached and I have a Bible and I read it sometimes. And that doesn't mean we're okay with God. That doesn't mean we're right. It doesn't mean we're going to heaven. It doesn't mean we're founded on the rock. It starts there. We need to hear the words of Christ, but it's more than that. And both in verse 24 and those, and those there and those in verse 26 are presented, at least superficially, having the same hearing. They, they both seem to be glad to hear his words. They both desire to build a, a Christian house, in, in our terminology, a Christian life, at least as far as, as all that is immediately visible. The picture is one of, of the houses looking the same, built close together, same town, same area. They undergo the same storms later in the picture. So both profess faith, both desire to build a life that enjoys Christian blessings. A sobering illustration of how identical these two lives, these two houses and these two lives can be is Judas Iscariot. So you have the 12 apostles. He's one of them. Just a few hours before he betrays Christ. And Christ says, one of you will betray me. Not one of the other 11 suspect Judas. Because it looked the same. But it wasn't. He's the son of perdition. It's, it's a sobering understanding. Christ is warning us here. But there are some distinctions in the hearing of these two groups represented by the two builders. And the distinctions lead to two different responses, and those responses help us have insight into the different hearing that leads there. So the first group we've already talked about a little bit, the genuine believers in verse 24, hear Christ's words with humility, with teachability, glad to be examined by the Scriptures, convicted by His words, submissive to it, hungering, to go back to the Beatitudes, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. The second group, false professors of faith, what we'll call them, because that's, as we finish the whole picture, that's what they are. And, and by the way, the Puritans were right to spend time on this whole concept of there can be false professing of faith. They cared enough for souls to, make, to, dis, to have discussions of that kind of discernment about one, about one another and about ourselves. Because it's not loving, it's not good, it's not caring to have a soul falsely professing faith, self-deluded, thinking they're okay, and they're on their way to hell. That's not loving, that's not good. They were right to do that, and that's exactly what Christ is doing as he concludes the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying there is false profession, be warned, and there's genuine profession. Make sure you're in the genuine. So, the second group enjoys Christ's words in some ways. It's possible they know theology, they may be orthodox, but they're superficial with it. And so it's, it's a head knowledge that can, can, they can become prideful about, maybe want to win arguments over. But the false believer will resent conviction of sin from Christ's words. The, the false believer will want to please himself and therefore not want anything that makes him uncomfortable. And so he'll tend to avoid teachings from God's word that will make him feel uncomfortable, like God's wrath, God's justice and judgment, God's holiness. And so there's going to be, in, in the hearing of the second group, there's going to be a tendency to pick and choose. I like this from the scriptures. I don't like that. My God's not like that. People do that all the time people in churches, people who profess to be Christians. That's a glaring red flag. Not that a true believer can't on times do that or struggle with the truth or be uncomfortable, but if you're just, I don't want that, I'm picking this, that's a red flag, you're not a true believer. That's part of what Christ is presenting to us here. Christ calls us to hear his word genuinely. He warns us to avoid hearing it only superficially. 
and deceiving ourselves. So how do we hear it? Do we react with pride or humility? Teachability, submissiveness, even when it hurts, or resentment and avoidance and suppressing the truth? Let's go on. Verse 24 continues. So back to, back to the first picture. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. So to build a life that will survive the storms, act on Christ's words. First, we hear Christ's words genuinely, and then we act on his words. Everyone, whoever hears and acts, is like this wise man building his house on the rock. The image of the rock, it's not of a rock, it's not of a, of a rock, it's of bedrock. It's of an expanse of strong foundation of the earth to build upon. And the rock certainly represents Christ. Isaiah 28, 1 Peter 2, Christ is the cornerstone. Romans 9, Christ is the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. 1 Corinthians 3, he's the only foundation for believers. 1 Corinthians 10, he's the spiritual rock from which his people drink. In the Old Testament, God the Father is compared to a rock, and those certainly apply to God the Son as well. Here in Matthew 7, Christ joins his words to himself in this image of, of the rock that the house is being built upon. So it's not just Christ in some sentimental generalized sense. It's Christ and his word. It's Christ and the specific truth he's revealed about himself to us. Christ and his word form this bedrock upon which to build our life. And the building, he describes here, the way he's, the way he's saying it, is acting on the words. So it, it, Christ and his word is the bedrock to build upon it is to hear it and act on those words. It's the only way to build upon the rock of Christ. Earlier we looked at how to genuinely hear God's word, to hear it, to read it, to, to study it, to memorize it, to meditate on it. Well, to complete a genuine hearing of God's word, we have to apply it. We have to act on it. We have to live it in our hearts and lives. The application of Christ's words begins with the gospel. The, the, the clear call here to act, to obey Christ, must not be misunderstood as teaching justification by works, that we're saved by these actions. That to get saved, to get to heaven, we have to do certain things. That's not what Christ is saying. The context, remember, is the Sermon on the Mount. If you go back to chapter 5, verses 1 to 16, that description can only describe someone saved by the grace of God through faith in Christ alone, not by works. And there are other passages in Christ's word that explicitly make that clear. Passages like Romans 3, where it's, it, it makes the case how we're all sinners and that none can be saved by keeping the works of the law. And then the way we can be saved is through Christ's propitiation. He's the satisfaction of the wrath of God by his blood, and it's received by faith. Those, it's for those who believe in him, that their faith in Christ. Or Ephesians 2, we're dead in our sins, God makes us alive, and then by grace through faith, not by works, we're saved, that no one may boast. And only then, verse 10 of Ephesians 2, we walk in the works he planned for us. Saved by grace through faith, we walk in his good works by his grace and in faith. Or 1 John 3.23 says it this way, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he's commanded us. We must recognize this is not speaking to anything other than, it starts with the gospel of grace. But if we've experienced the gospel of grace, what he's saying is we're to live out that faith by his grace. It should show up. Fruit should bear out from his saving work in our hearts and our lives. We, we should desire to obey Christ if we've been saved, and we should be making progress in doing so. Not perfection. We won't be perfect to glory, but we should be progressing in it seeing him evidently working in us. James, in his letter, makes this point in James 1, 21 and 22. 
Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Receive the word, not just mentally, making clear into our heart, teachably. Obey it, receive it, do it. And when we're only a hearer, verse 22 says, we do, in fact, deceive ourselves. That's exactly what Christ is warning us against. Charles Spurgeon once preached, quote, It is a faith which produces works which saves us. The works do not save us. But a faith which does not produce works is a faith that will only deceive and cannot lead us into heaven. That's what Christ is warning about here as well. And we never stop needing to hear Christ's words and to act on Christ's words. We never arrive where we don't need it anymore. We never are a Christian long enough. I've got it now. We're never just old enough, don't need it anymore. We never can be put in a role in the church. Well, now I'm at a place I don't need it. I teach over here, or I lead this ministry, or I'm a pastor. If, if I ever rest on being a pastor, I'm done for. I'm, I'm exactly like those in, in verses 21 to 23. Lord, did I not serve as a pastor at Riverbend in your name? Depart from me. We cannot rest on anything we do. We rest on the rock of Christ and his word. But when we rest there, we obey. By his grace, in his power, he keeps working on us, keeps, he keeps working on me. He's working on me as I prepare this sermon. Showing me things I need, there's little areas I need to grow and I need to be sanctified and I need to confess, I need to be forgiven. Things like stewardship, of finances, of things, of time, of my family, of ministry. How am I serving the Lord? He's entrusted these things. Am I doing it for his glory? I constantly need it. We, if we're in Christ, we constantly need to be growing. Doing what he's told us here to be the wise man building by his grace on the rock, acting on the words that he gives us. Now verse 26 goes on to describe the other response to Christ's words. Look, look there at verse 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. To build a life that will fall in utter destruction, do not act on Christ's words. Hear them, just superficially, don't act on them. And you'll build a life that will fall in utter destruction. The ones who hear Christ's words and do not act are compared to the foolish man who built his house on sand. It's, it's so obvious, and yet we so easily in our lives do it. In, in verses, again, back to 21 to 23 of chapter 7, those condemned by Christ list many acts that they did in his name. The problem is they were doing their own acts. It wasn't Christ, we trust you alone, and out of that faith you produce this, these works of, of fruit of that in our lives, it's, Lord, look what we did. Did we not do this? Did we not do this? Christ is warning us here. You see those in 21 to 23 indicate complete self-assurance. They think we're set. By what we've done, we're going to heaven. And Christ said, no, you don't trust me. I don't know you. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, You say, I have not worried about my sins for years. That's an indication in itself that there's something wrong. The man who never knows what it is to have certain fears about himself, fears which drive him to Christ, is in a highly dangerous condition. So be warned against desiring only the benefits of Christ, but not Christ. Discern the difference between genuine saving faith, being God's child, and just thinking you are. Lloyd-Jones also, Raleigh, points out that we must not wait until Judgment Day to see the difference. 
He's telling us this so, so we'll see the difference while there's still time to repent, to trust Christ, to start building on the rock. In Luke's gospel of the Sermon on the Mount, and we, when he has this, uh, tells this part of the sermon, he says that the wise man dug deep to lay this foundation on the rock. Cern and dig deep. That's why Christ is warning us here. The fool is the one who ignores that warning and doesn't dig at all. Verse 25 of chapter 7 goes on. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house, the wise man's house, on the rock. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. So back to our first house, to build a life that will survive the storms. Rest in the assurance of Christ's word. Hear his words, act on his words, and then rest in the assurance of his word. Christ graphically describes here the rains, the floods, the winds falling upon, beating upon this house. Those in the house would hear and feel that bombardment. One of the things that struck me after the hurricane was stories out of the Bahamas where a Cat 5 hurricane stalled out and just pounded them and pounded them. And the, the, the terror, the, just the, they could feel all of that going on all around. In many cases, parts of their houses being taken apart and having to flee to another house in the midst of it. And, and when the, the storms of life hit us, we feel it. It affects us. It, it can rock us to the foundation. That's why we need the foundation there. Matthew has a play on words here. The storm fell against the house violently, but the house did not fall. Do you, do you hear it? The glorious assurance for the true believer in, in this story and in this picture. For the, for the ones who by grace hear Christ's words and act on them, who are saved by his grace through faith and fruit is being born. For true believers, no matter how horrific the storms, the foundation holds. Um, Ron Dunn years ago spoke here and he had, a, he had a son commit suicide and he spoke of how he, he went to the bottom the bottom solid talking about Christ Christ in his word it's solid, it holds it holds his people it doesn't let us get torn down we can get battered the description here is being battered by these storms but it holds. It's not destroyed. It's not washed away. You know, there are some, we spoke of the storms of life. There are some storms of life that are, are beyond imagination. We were in D.C. with our eighth graders last week, and every year we go to the Holocaust Museum. And to be just vividly reminded of the depth of the evil in destroying, trying to destroy a whole group of people. And actually, you know, the biggest group was the Jews, but there were other groups they were trying to destroy. And they were destroying Christians who were trying to protect those other peoples. And uh, just horrific. And as you go through there, there's a quote on a wall by Eli Wiesel. It was a survival, a survivor. And he vividly describes losing his faith. No longer believes in God. As, as the smoke rises from the furnaces burning the bodies. He's a great rider, talented rider. But so heartbreaking. He wasn't on the rock. But I, when I read that, I always am reminded of Corey Ten Boom, who also survived the Holocaust, who was a Christian. And the rock stood firm. Her faith was brought through the horror of that, of seeing her sister die. And to the point where after the war, she met one of the guards and she remembered him and he was able to forgive her. It's, 
The storms are horrific, and we still have evil today. It's not just the Nazis. All through history, there have been many. ISIS. Today, ISIS does those kinds of things. Communist China does those kinds of things. There's still examples all over the world of evil, just pure evil being done people to people, and it's on small scales too. A person molests a child, that's evil. It rocks us to the core when evil happens, when those storms happen. And then sometimes we do sinful and evil things, and it rocks us. And the only way we can stand is if we're on Christ in his word by his grace. And as Christ is describing this, there's, I see surprise here. There seems to be surprise that the house did not fall because the storm's onslaught was so great, and it is. But it didn't fall. And so he gives an explanation of why it didn't fall. For it had been founded on the rock. All are tested. The glorious assurance is that in Christ will pass the test of the little vexation storm to final judgment storm and all in between. If you're in Christ, if you're on Christ, you pass through the test of those storms. Now look at verse 27, the parallel verse. With the other house, on the sand, the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. To build a life that will fall in utter destruction, hear God's word just superficially. Do not act on his word and ignore the warning of his word. The same storms hit this house. The idea, the picture, I think, is they're next door to each other. And it falls. And here, there seems to be no surprise. And no explanation needs to be given. It's obvious. It fell because it's on sand. There's no foundation to it. It reminds me of John 3, 16 to 18. The one who does not believe is condemned. No surprise, because he's condemned already. We all are. The surprise is the eternal life for those who believe there in John 3, 16 to 18. So instead of an explanation here in, John 7, in Matthew 7 as to why the house fell, it's just the fall is reiterated and emphasized, and great was its fall. And an interesting note is that in these four verses, there's all these re- parallel phrases, repeated exact words, but... The word translated slammed against in verse 25 and the word translated slammed against in verse 27 are actually two different verbs. Now, they're synonyms. Completely legitimate translation, New American Standard, translating them the same way. But with so many words and phrases being repeated exactly, I I agree with William Hendrickson. There has to be a reason. And And the word in verse 27 can have the idea also of stumble. So perhaps this word was chosen by Matthew because just the initial stumble of the storm against the house was enough for it to fall. Whereas by contrast, the house on the rock endured the full force and the entire duration of the wind, the rain, the floods, and it still stood. It's an incredible combination of warning and assurance that Christ gives at the end of this sermon. If you're not by grace through faith on Christ and his word alone, and that's evidenced by in faith by grace obeying his word, following his word, storms will get you. And certainly the ultimate storm of judgment will. And Christ is sovereign over that. But you, we, cannot, we cannot read this and say that that sovereignty of Christ over salvation means he doesn't care. Everything about this sermon and this conclusion shouts how deeply he cares. 
The Bible's clear. His sovereignty does not negate our responsibility. His sovereignty does not negate that he's saying, come to me in faith and you will be saved and you'll be solid on the foundation. If you don't, it's your fault for your sin. That he cares, he's crying out, he's calling to us, come, be founded on me and my word, the rock. Build your house here. Don't be self-deceived and build it on sand. And then the strong assurance, if you do, if you have, no matter the storm, maybe one you're in the midst of now, maybe one that's going to come soon, your death one day, judgment before God one day, you'll be brought through all of them because you're on a solid foundation of Christ. So build a life that will survive the storms. Hear Christ's word genuinely. Act on his words by his grace. Rest in the assurance of his words. And do not build a life that will fall in utter destruction. Don't keep superficial in hearing. Don't refuse to act. Don't ignore the warning. Discern. Where are you? 2 Corinthians 13.5, test yourselves. Examine Not to live in this constant state of uncertainty, but to be certain, to be genuinely certain, to be certain according to what God has told us in his word, to rest assured, be discerning with others that we have influence over. Let it affect how we evangelize, how we disciple. Uh, Lloyd-Jones again, one more quote. He says, anyone who can face these tests, the negative and the positive, in that way can be happy and certain and sure that his house is being built upon the rock. If, on the other hand, you find you cannot answer these tests satisfactorily, there's but one inevitable conclusion. You have been building upon the sand, and your house will collapse. That's, if you're hearing this, and, you, and that's you, flee to Christ. Don't suppress it. Don't go out and get distracted from it. Come to Christ. Pursue him in his word. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Our discerning is not demanding perfection. It's seeing if by grace alone the Lord has brought us to faith alone in Christ alone to his glory alone. It's being, in the words of the Beatitudes, poor in spirit, mourning our sin, meek, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And and a a specific test comes to mind. Like Corey Ten Boom, can we forgive? A test of our heart. And it's in here in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful. Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers. To be merciful and peacemaking, you have to forgive. Matthew 6, where we're taught here in this sermon, taught about how to pray. We're to pray, forgive us our trespasses or our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then, when the prayer's over, it goes back and spends two extra verses on this forgiveness thing how essential it is for us to be forgiven, we have to forgive. And his point is that if we're forgiven, we will forgive. It shows up. The fruit will be born. So do we forgive or do we harbor bitterness? It's a heart test. Now, a true believer can harbor bitterness for a time. A true believer can do all kinds of sinful things for a time. But God tells us he doesn't leave us there. He chastens. He draws back. He convicts us. He, we, we, if, we're, if we're in Christ... We're going to desire to follow and obey him. We're going to hate sin when it's in our life. We won't be left there. So if we, if we can harbor bitterness, refuse to forgive, and be content with that, we're not safe. Our Christian house, in that case, is on sand. Plead to Christ. We, we, we don't have time to go on, but I would mention one last area of application. Our children. As parents, we're, we're tasked with training up our children. That's building a life. Now, ultimately, they're responsible for building their life. Are they building it on the rock, Christ and his word, or on sin? But our heart should be to be an instrument in the hands of God, point them to the rock, point them to Christ, to his word, to, to guide them from errors along that way. And in a Christian context, there can be errors. As we, 
exalt our Lord and Savior for His sovereign grace in our lives, we want to make sure they don't misunderstand that as fatalism. It's not. The Bible doesn't say nothing you can do about it, just hope you're, you're there in the end. The Bible says repent. The Bible says believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Or there could be the error of, of thinking it's by works. I've got to, in myself, produce this fruit. No, the Holy Spirit produces the fruit when we've trusted Christ. Or there can be the error of easy believism, decisionism, just, just pray this prayer, just ask Christ to forgive you and all's well, and there's no sense of, have they genuinely done so? And is it showing out in their lives? Urgently, diligently, carefully, prayerfully present the true gospel to them over and over. Walk with them through the storms. They're going to start experiencing storms too. It starts young, doesn't it? And all through life, and shepherd them while you're still training them up through those storms, always going back to Christ, always going back to Christ and his word. So don't be deceived. Build your life on the rock. Hear the word of God genuinely. Act on it by his grace. Rest the assurance of his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the kindness, the mercy, the grace you show even in this warning that concludes this sermon of Christ. I pray that those not yet in Christ, that you would convict them of that, show them their sin, and then show them yourself. They would flee to Christ and know the joy of your salvation. Those who are yours, Lord, forgive where we fall short. Where we still struggle with our own sins, doubts. And grow us. Make us more like Christ. Build our house to your glory as a witness to others. Father, we we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.